Streak off of here and go down the side. They do. Stock's got it. He's got running room. Stock could dive. Hang it up. It's good. It's good. The Jazz win it. The Jazz win it. I can't believe it. The Jazz win it. Clarkson feeling it on a lob. Oh, my. Oh, you have to love it. Clarkson to Mitchell. A thing of beauty. Rudy gets turned around. The lawn right back. Welcome into Home Court Press. This is your host, Brian Priest. I'm joined once again by the Twitter aficionado fire starter, McCade Pearson. What's up, McCade? Uh, not much. You, you start any fire fires starter. this week? We can go with that. Um... I don't think so. There's nothing to start fires about. You need oxygen to start fires. There's no oxygen in the NBA world right now. Yeah, there's not a whole lot to breathe at the moment, unfortunately. But let's, I mean, let's use that as a quick little segue. So there has been some discussion on the NBA front, not just the NBA, but professional sports in the U.S. in general. And uh, a lot of conversation, and I don't want us to get too deep into it, but it's starting to sound more and more likely in terms of the players. They want to come back. They they want to be on the court, no matter what it's going to take for a majority of them, is what it sounds like. And it seems like there's a realistic scenario where we've got some teams playing in Orlando at the Disney World Complex. We've got some teams playing in Vegas, similar to your uh, July Summer League setup. And we are going to have, hopefully, four rounds of seven-game playoff series. What does it sound like to you, McCade? Yeah, um, that's what I've been listening to and hearing is uh, things look good. they got to figure out a few things. Um, is family allowed? What do you do when somebody tests positive? Because if you're going to just cancel if one person tests positive at this point, then it's going to be impossible to push through. And just some other minor things like that that are real questions and real concerns but definitely have plausible solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, so we should hopefully get going at the beginning of July. If all things go well, we should have a more concrete answer here in a couple of weeks. Two yeah, four is Adam Silver. So, yeah, really looking forward to it. I mean, we've already got the uh, German soccer Bundesliga started yesterday. There's a couple professional baseball leagues playing over uh, Korean league, and I think a, a a Chinese league, if I remember correctly. So we've already got some sports coming back, and they're they're starting to flesh out what is what this is going to take to be able to do it safely. And so I'm sure the NBA, Major League Baseball, uh, the NHL, the NFL, all these leagues are going to be be watching and take note of this. But it's exciting developments to think that come the 4th of July, it's always been my favorite holiday. And to think that we might get basketball, baseball, and hockey at the same time with football training camps right around the corner, it sounds like a magical summer to me. (laughs) It could be a really fun, unique summer. in the best and worst way possible. Yeah. But that's what makes life interesting. So we'll roll with what we got and hope for the best and hope we find a good balance between the health, which is the number one concern, and the entertainment and money aspect. Yep. And I think that's that's the biggest thing is, as it comes down to can we keep everybody healthy, not just the players, but all of the, the support staff, the arena staff. And if we can do that, let's let's get it going. Let's Let's watch some sports and some competition and have that distraction of life. But... Since that's all we know, which 
frankly, isn't very much. McCain and I, we, we've been looking back at, at the Utah Jazz historically and, and some of the things that the franchise has done in terms of, you know, our last podcast, we talked about players that have had their numbers retired and who deserves to get their numbers retired next. We've talked about uh, previous playoff seasons. We've talked about some of the best players in, in Jazz history, like individual player seasons. And we've had a lot of fun with that. But I think, McCade, you... You and I are on the same page here. We really just wanted to talk about real basketball and and what's actually going on right now. Clearly, yeah. there's not a lot for us to discuss, but let's take a look at at this current Jazz team, the uh, 2019-20 version that we have right now with the season possibly coming back. What are some of the best five-man lineups, some of the best on-off numbers? What, who are the, the players that Jazz fans can look forward to being on the floor in a, a tight playoff game? Come July, hopefully. So, McCade, this is, as a numbers guy, this is all you. I, I'm just going to listen along, nod my pretty head, and uh, maybe ask a couple questions. So, go ahead and take this. I wish Tell I us see your first of all. Head. We got to do one of these in person again when things calm down. Um, <laughs> I'm on the phone for those who can't tell by my voice and how it's all put up. But, um, no, I love lineup data. It's one of my favorite things because it's such a fascinating question that makes you boil things down to the game of basketball. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm a fire starter, like you said, is because a couple years ago, I like stopped everything I was doing with basketball, and I like tried to go down to the very basics and build up from there. So basketball is a game, like 99% of games, that your goal is to score more, not the most, but more points than your opponent. And so how you do that is you play five on five and you try and score as many points as you can. You try and let up as few points as you can. And if your score is bigger than the other teams at the end of the game, you get a win. Win a lot of games, make the playoffs, win a lot of playoff games, win a championship. And so when you boil basketball down to that simple of an aspect, you can really start to dive into data and what is important and what wins games, which is the only question I've been trying to answer for 20 years and still trying to figure it out. Um, the first thing I noticed in doing this is how little five-man lineups matter. Um, they're just so hard to keep together. So last year, there's only six or seven lineups that played 500 minutes together. And that's with the Jazz specifically, right? That, no, that's totally NBA. Oh, Wow. There's only like seven lineups that hit 500 minutes. Two of those lineups were the Jazz. Um, Rubio, Ingles, Mitchell, Gobert, and Favors hit 500, and Rubio, Ingles, Mitchell, Gobert, and Crowder hit 500 minutes together. So the Jazz actually had two of those seven. The Jazz do lean on five-man lineups a lot. But it's so hard to get five-man lineups to actually play together because of things like foul trouble and injuries. The leader this year is in Denver, uh, Millsap, Barton, Harris, Jokic, Murray lineup, and they've played a whopping 735 minutes together over the course of 38 games. So they've only played together in about half of the Nuggets games, um, which just shows how hard it is to keep a five-man unit healthy and out of foul trouble and cohesive. Um, the Jazz leading five-man lineup isn't that far behind. They're at 570 minutes, and that's our going uh, on Gobert, Ingles, O'Neal, Mitchell, or the O lineup, as everyone calls it, because the second letter in all their names is O. Um, but yeah, five-man lineups are really tough to come by. If a five-man lineup isn't very, in, I don't want to say isn't indicative of a team's success, what what do you look for when you look at lineup on-off numbers to get something that is more indicative of 
the successes or failures that you're seeing on the court? I think you just start going down the line and trying to figure out what works for your team. Four-man lineups are better, but they're a little um, – they're still hard to keep together. The Jazz actually have the highest four-man lineup in the league. That's Boyan, Rudy, Royce, and Donovan. They've played 1,135 minutes together. They have the highest three-man lineup in the league. That's Boyan, Rudy, Royce. And they have the highest two-man lineup in the league. That's Boyan, Rudy. So the Jazz definitely are the leaders in the clubhouse. Um, when it comes to two, three, four-man lineups, as I said, Quinn likes to keep his lineups together. He'll mess around a lot when he tries to figure out what lineups need to be there. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Um, but Quinn does like his longer lineups, and uh, really building around Boyan and Rudy has kind of been the main aspect of this season. Um, as I said, Boyan and Rudy are the highest-played two-man lineup. They've played almost 2,000 minutes together. Boyan's played over 91% of his minutes with Rudy Gobert. And so that's what you kind of got to do is you got to boil away the fat until you get to what actually matters. Um, and you've seen that with team building over the last 10 years. We can start with the Heatles when they had Dwayne Wade, LeBron, and Chris Bosh. They said, okay, let's get these three, and these three will be great, and it doesn't really matter what two are playing with them. That five-man lineup will be great. So it was really that three-man lineup that killed it. And super-duper stars can be a one-man lineup where you go, okay, if this guy's on the court, the other four players are just not terrible will be positive. So that's what you're trying to do here. It doesn't matter if you're winning games 82 to 80 or 122 to 120. You're just trying to have a better offense than their offense via your defense. Yeah, because in the end... Yeah. In the end, with an NBA game, you've got five starters. You've got five guys on the floor for 48 minutes. So you've got exactly. 240 minutes that you need to win as many of those minutes individually as you can, as many of those stretches uh, of play. So, yeah, you want to you want to match things up. Uh, Quinn Snyder, I think, does a, a really good job of uh, being able to. You, you're talking about Bojan Bogdanovic and Rudy Gobert as the number one two-man lineup, most minutes played together in the NBA. And I think that's that's indicative of what Quinn Snyder tries to do in in terms of maximizing um, matchups and things like that. Because Bojan and, and Rudy, actually, when you look at it in from the, like, mid-second quarter to the, about maybe nine minutes left in the second quarter to about five minutes left in the second quarter. Usually, if, when I remember... The uh, the games it's been so long, God, two months. But it seems like Rudy and Bojan during that four minute stretch, four or five minute stretch, are typically two guys that Quinn really tries to rely on. But he, he's also trying to get them minutes against bench units. You know, you don't just want your five starters only matching up with the other team's five starters. You want to try and find some of those uh, advantages that that you can get in terms of lineup and and mixing and matching those things. So that's one thing that. I love that Quinn Snyder is able to do because, like you said, he likes to keep his lineups pretty similar, but he's not afraid to change lineups or to mix things up. Or if something's just not working, he'll go away from it immediately. But it's not a huge change. you know. He's not going to change 40% of the starting lineup. He, he's going to change that second unit and bring in Jordan Clarkson two minutes earlier, and then you're, you're going to take Bojan out at you know, eight minutes and then bring him back in at the beginning of the second quarter so that he has more opportunities to create. And that's just, 
you know, I've, I've kind of rambled on here, but that's one of the things that I love about the way Quinn Snyder is able to build a lineup and build this team and maximize players' strengths. Thanks for listening to the pod today, everyone. Home Court Press can be found online at kbear.com. Just go to kbear.com forward slash home court press. And you can also find it on any of the major podcatchers. Also, while you're checking out those podcatchers and looking for Home Court Press, if you could give us a five-star rating, that would be appreciated. Those five-star ratings set up an algorithm to get us near the top of the list so more people will see the pod and, and we can spread it around a little bit farther. And last but not least, make sure to follow myself, Brian Priest, on Twitter at bpriest. 24 and you can also find our co-host McCade Pearson at McCade P8 that's M C C A D E P8 Exactly and it's one thing I'm very critical of um you know I'm critical of a lot of players and coaches and this and that that's just how I work right but yeah. um it's very important to keep I mean it's, there's a thousand different ways to it but it's very important to keep your progression linear um it's what made the 2000 eight to 10 Lakers so good is they had Lamar Odom, Pau Gasol and Andrew Bynum. And they'd always play two of the three. Mm-hmm. And so for 48 minutes, they were building their lead. There wasn't a, let's build a 10 point lead and then we'll let them cut it to three and then we'll go at 15 and then we'll let them cut it to five. And then we might win by eight or something like that. It was pedal to the metal. Even if you're only gaining one point every few minutes, by the end of the game, that's going to be 16 points. If you keep it up. So what made the jazz so good last year with Derek favors is Favors and Rudy would take a lead. Favors would hold the lead. Rudy would grow the lead, and it just keep going. Um, and so it's so important to win all 240 minutes. It's funny you bring that up. Um, I had a dream about starting a podcast like two years ago, and that was going to be my name was Four Hours for Victory, because that's what 240 minutes is four hours. And so it's that four hours for victory that really does lead you to those wins, and it, every minute is so crucial to that. Yeah, that's the thing that I think is is often overlooked, especially when you when fans look at the the bench units on the floor. Is you you think that okay, we we can afford to throw away two or three possessions, but NBA games are so so closely fought, and NBA teams are so similarly matched up. Even when you take the best team in the league against the worst team in the league, a bad four minute stretch can sink you and, and lose a game. Just four minutes. The tenth of a point of possession. Yep. So if you assume every field goal is worth two points, which is obviously a little rough estimate, it takes 20 possessions to separate the best team and the worst team by one basket. That's why NBA games are 100 possessions long. It takes 100 possessions to separate two teams and get the right winner. Um, No, but you brought up a good point of how important bench play is. So I'm going to ask you a question. How do you define bench play? Because... Nowadays, it's not as simple as five starters go off, five bench players come in. So what is, in general, and specifically for the Jazz, what is bench play? Uh, specifically for the Jazz, I, th- I think bench play is a lineup that gives you a different look. So for the Jazz, they've got their starters, and, and that five-man unit, no matter who is on the floor, as long as Rudy Gobert is there, that five-man unit is based should be based on defense. And so to me, a, a bench unit, an effective bench unit is squad that brings in Jordan Clarkson off the bench. I, you and I have talked about it a little bit, and I think we, we agree in a, a lot of sense about Jordan Clarkson. We weren't sure what to expect from him, but he's perfect coming off of the Jazz bench this season because they had to have that instant offense. They had to have that bench unit that wasn't going to be so focused on defense. I think they learned last year that when 
your your roster is so primarily defensive focused that it doesn't when you get to the playoffs and you're playing a team like the Rockets, it doesn't matter how good your defense is if you can't score 100 points a game. It just doesn't matter. So that's what I think a bench unit is. is It, it gives you that change of pace. It gives you a different look. And some games, your, your starting lineup is going to play 38 minutes and you're going to win by 30. There's going to be other games where you're – you know, three of your starters play less than 30 minutes, and you've, you've got guys like Clarkson and Yang that come in off of the bench and end up playing 20, 25 minutes in a game, and and they carry you. So I think, long explanation, but a bench, you need a different look. Okay, so going back to what I started the podcast with, is it, and just looking at the numbers, is it fair to define bench unit as non-Rudy Gobert minutes? Yeah, I think that's pretty fair when you look at the Jazz. Um. Because everybody's awesome with Rudy. Donovan's a plus seven. Royce is a plus nine. Boyan's a plus eight. Joe's a plus nine. Clarkson's a plus eight. Um, like everyone's great with Rudy, and everyone except for a few people are terrible without Rudy. Donovan's a minus nine. Royce is a minus nineteen. Boyan's a minus twelve. Um, there's just some struggles there. But wait, wait, hold people, on. I want to clarify yeah. here. So you are telling me that the Jazz to a man are better with Rudy Gobert protecting the basket? Both offensively and defensively. Gobert protecting the basket, yes. What a brain bender right there. (laughs) Who would have thunk it? And it doesn't matter what four he's playing with. He's doing a great job protecting the rim. And it doesn't matter what five we're playing without him, except for maybe a couple exceptions. The Jazz are terrible without him. Um, So that's how I would define (laughs) bench play for the Jazz is what are we doing in the non-Rudy Gobert minutes? And that was a huge struggle to start the season, as we are all very well aware. But they've done some taping and some patchwork to make it not only bearable, it was bearable for a while, but all of a sudden the last couple weeks before we stopped playing basketball almost seemed to be heading in the right direction, not just a neutral direction. Did did Tony Bradley over the last month of the season start to look like he could be a rotation player in the NBA? Because honestly, coming into this year, I, I didn't think he had it in him. I just didn't think he was athletic enough. But he's looked so much more comfortable on the floor. He's looked awesome this year. Um, I don't think he's ever going to be a starter or anything like that. No, 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 no. He's one of the best rebounders, specifically offensively, the league has ever seen. His offensive rebound percentage is, like, all-time great level right now this year, um, which is just phenomenal because offensive rebounding is something the Jets have really struggled with under Quinn Snyder. Uh, the league's going away from it as a whole, but you still get the point. Um, he's finishing really well. He's shooting like 65% from the field, which is good. And you all, you're not going to get the favors plus five you want from Tony Bradley, but Tony Bradley's on-court net rating this year is negative 0.2. And so if you break that down to his minutes per game, he's basically losing you a point every 20 games. Like He's playing about as neutral as you can get. And if you have Rudy Gobert as your starting center, that's going to be good enough on a lot of nights. And you let Rudy win the game, you let Tony Bradley not lose it. Now, now I want to slow down for a little bit there because this yeah. is this is where I think you you can run into trouble when when you're strictly looking at numbers and yes. not necessarily looking at matchups. Which not what I'm saying you're doing. Just think again. That's that's why you and I are doing this podcast together because we look at the game in a different way, so we can yeah. try and contrast these things. And so when I look at those Tony Bradley minutes, one. That's, I think, it's definitely indicative of his improvement as a player, his growth as a center for the Utah Jazz and being able to take that backup center role. 
But I also think it's a, a huge indicator of Quinn Snyder's just the the way he matches players up when when the Jazz are facing a super athletic team like I've got the box score up for the uh, Celtics game when when the Jazz went into Boston and beat them 99-94 on that last road trip Tony Bradley didn't get a ton of minutes in that game he doesn't get a ton of minutes in games where he he's playing athletic backup bigs so Quinn does a really good job of of putting Tony in situations where he can be successful by playing against guys who are in a similar athletic plane to him. If you put Tony Bradley on the floor against, uh, I mean, shoot, there's there's a number of guys. You know, you, you take a guy like Davis Bertans in Washington, Tony Bradley can't guard him. You just can't put Tony Bradley on the perimeter against Davis Bertans. Uh, against Memphis, you can't have Tony Bradley being expected to guard Brandon Clark and Jaron Jackson Jr., whether it be on the perimeter or in the post, because he's just not athletic enough. But Quinn does a, a great job of putting him in those positions to be as successful as possible and use the skills that he does have in terms of offensive rebounding, his finishing skills, and things like that. And that's where Quinn has to do his thing. And that's where you build lineups as you're trying to figure out what can I do to make sure I have more points than the opponent at the end of the game, um, which is a super complex question that obviously we can spend hundreds of hours discussing. Um, and Quinn does a great job of that, of getting people where they need to be to perform their best. And so, as I said, if we can get Bradley to just be a zero, that's great. Let Rudy build the lead. Let Bradley not screw it up. And Bradley's definitely done that this year. Bradley's awesome. He's still the youngest player on the Jazz. He's younger than all six of our rookies, and that's fun to see, fun to have the potential to still see exactly what he be, can become, but he's been a crucial part of the Jazz turnaround this year, um, taking over Ed Davis' backup center spot. But that's uh, where I go on where is the Jazz bench minutes? It's just non Rudy Gobert minutes, which right now is just Tony Bradley minutes. But um, so what's well, their best we, bench unit? We've seen what? Well, go ahead. Sorry. What's their best bench unit based on on that criteria? So, the last few weeks we've seen. The bench unit of Clarkson, Ingles, Niang, and Bradley really kill it. Um, mostly with Conley, a little bit with Mitchell, but just in general, the four-man lineup of Clarkson, Ingles, Niang, and Bradley has just been awesome. The the ball movement with that unit. You and I talked before we started the pod about Conley in that unit specifically, and the ball movement that they have, the way they're able to work together. Even with a guy like Jordan Clarkson, who for for all his greatness as an offensive threat, the guy just doesn't pass the basketball. But they they put him in situations. Again, this is Quinn with his his lineup acumen. He puts Jordan Clarkson in, in situations and with lineups with guys who don't need to have the ball in their hands. You know, you you've got Conley, Joe Ingles, and George Niang just spotting up on the perimeter. Clarkson, go do your thing, and then Tony Bradley's there to clean it up at the hoop if if they happen to miss a shot, like. This is one of those units that I love watching this, especially the last uh, handful of games, five or six games before the season stopped. This was one of my favorite five-man lineups to watch on this team. Yeah, so with Conley, they're a plus 30 in 150 possessions. With Mitchell, they're a plus 24 in 130 possessions. And with Conley, Mitchell, Moutier, whoever is that fifth guy, they're a plus 28 and 282 possessions. So we're getting to the point, I mean, 282 possessions is basically three full games. So we're getting to the point where that's a very real, not small sample size lineup. That Clarkson, Ingles, Niang, and Bradley, and some point guards who can do most of the ball handling just really, really works. 
And if you can have Rudy Gobert build a lead for you and you can have them build a lead for you on the bench, you're going to be really tough to beat. Yep. And that's what we're all going for. Um, yeah, I, I, more, I, for I loved that point you made about, you know, just you just want to build the lead in, in every minute of the game. You don't want to have those lineups where you know that you're you're giving something back to your opponent. And that's... You know, it's it's what the Jazz have worked on building all year, and it just adds to the the frustration of of this season and and everything that's been going on with COVID nineteen. Because I may be a little bit of a homer, but I really felt like they were building that second unit and building the the lineups in a way that they were going to be dangerous come playoff time. It's really just rebounding too with that team. The defense is phenomenal because they don't let up second chance points and they don't foul. They're actually still letting a good amount of shots go in the basket, but they're just limiting the amount of shots and free throws they get. And the offense is killing it everywhere. They're just, they don't miss. They don't turn the ball over. And um, they're, so the Jazz, as I said, the Jazz have really struggled rebounding offensively this year. Um, by design or whatever is up for debate. But league average has gone down crazy ton over the last 15 years. So a lot of it is by design. Teams just don't care about the offensive glass anymore. Yeah. But with that four-man lineup, on the court, they're getting 32% of their own misses, which ranks in the 98th percentile, according to cleaning the glass. Um, as I said, Tony Bradley's having one of the top 10 seasons all time in offensive rebound, and he's been awesome. And so these guys are just getting so many more shots than their opponents, um, which is something the Jazz have really struggled with. They're 30th in the league in goal attempt differential. They just let their opponents get eight more shots than them. And this lineup has just shut that down completely and said, we're going to get four more shots than you in our 20 minutes of play. So so what you're saying is it's not necessarily this lineup is so much better in terms of scoring and efficiency. It's they're just getting more looks at the basket than their opponents during the time on the floor. No, and they're not missing at all. Okay, the so the efficiency is there. Making. Okay. Yeah, so they're, they're not missing, and then they miss like six shots, and they get two offensive rebounds in that six shots. Uh, those are just playful estimates. But um, you don't miss shots, and when you do, you get the offensive rebound it makes your offense really, really, really good. And then defensively, they're in the 100th percentile in defensive rebound percentage, so they're just not letting up any second-chance points on the other end. And so they're just dominating um, teams everywhere. There's no fouls being called on the court, too, which helps when they're on the court. They're not fouling at all, and they're not getting fouled at all. But um, everything else is just awesome. So They're not turning the ball over. They're just, their offense is killing it, and their defense is elite. So humor me with your reasoning why that that would be the case with this lineup. Is it is it spacing? Is it the the ball handling that they have on the floor? Is it uh, additional hustle that you get out of, out of guys like you know George Niang and Jordan Clarkson? They just come out and play hard. They may not be the best defensive players, but they're going to give effort. Um, is it positioning? Like what is it that leads to so much success in that lineup? I think we've talked about this. I don't know if we've talked about this on a podcast yet, but we've talked about how one thing this team is really lacking, at least at the beginning of the year, and it's starting to come together, is players having roles and being able to magnify and exceed their roles. Yeah. Um, this lineup, we're, we'll go with Conley mostly because that's what it's been lately. This, this lineup allows Conley to be a point guard and be who he's been his whole career. This lineup allows Joe to be a shooter and a secondary ball handler who we can run the pick and roll with Tony Bradley. This lineup allows Tony Bradley to really focus on offensive rebounding. This lineup allows George Yang to get up a lot of shots 
a lot of three-pointers and not have to do too much more than that. This lineup allows Clarkson to have a lot of space to work at when he has five seconds left in the shot clock. And so this lineup just lets these five guys have roles and be able to do those roles so effectively, which goes back to Quinn Snyder just setting them up in really good positions. Yep, I, and I think that's the key when, when it comes to a, a Quinn Snyder coach team that I've seen over the last several seasons with the Jazz is he identifies what players are best at and works to put them in that role, you know, like you're talking with, with George Niang. I don't want George Niang putting the ball on the floor. I don't want him facilitating an offense. I want George Niang to stand outside to the three-point line and catch and shoot. And, yeah, Quinn, Quinn does a really good job of putting guys in, in those types of situations. So let me ask you this, McCade, as we start to wrap up the pod today. You know, we've talked about starting starting units and, and how those can differ from a, a bench lineup, just our definitions of that. We've talked about some of the successful units that the Jazz have played this season. But really, an NBA game comes down to the, the final five minutes. What's the, the best in your research? What's the best closing lineup for the Jazz? Because from my perspective, one of the lineups that I've seen struggle the most and, and just leaves you wondering why. And I think I know why. But I, I wanted to ask you, do you have Mike Conley on the floor in, in a, a closing unit, or is is Conley going to typically be on the bench? How do you how do you mix your ball handlers versus your your defensive players? Like, what are the Jazz going to do to put their best five man unit on the floor to close out games once the playoffs get started? So we can agree the Jazz have six starters, right? Oh, absolutely. I I would even contend they might have seven. Um, you have Rudy Boyan, Roy Singles, Mitchell Conley, your main six. And so the question kind of becomes, and all due respect to Clarkson, but the question becomes, which of those six do you take off the court? Yeah. Um, you're not taking off Rudy. The Jazz haven't really taken off Boyan either. They only played 28 possessions without Boyan there. Um, the Jazz are awful without Royce. Royce is a huge glue guy. You're not taking off Donovan. They haven't done that much, and he's freaking Donovan Mitchell. So you're basically down to Ingles versus Conley, right? Yep. Is that fair to say? So 775 possessions plus 10.6 with no Ingles, 1,156 possessions plus 15 without Mike Conley. Um, and so I think you have to take off Mike Conley in that situation. And I'm a huge Mike Conley guy. I'm a huge Ohio State fan, like yada, yada, yada. But going back to the role things, what is Mike Conley's role down the stretch next to Donovan Mitchell? I'm not sure if he has one. Donovan Mitchell's going to be the on-ball guy the entire last five minutes of a close game. And so Conley's a good shooter, but he's not a good secondary playmaker like Joe Ingles is. Conley's a primary playmaker. Mm-hmm. He's not some big guy who you can hit slashing. I mean, he might go a little bit here or there, but he's not going to have some great cuts or some. He's not going to get a contested corner three off like Boyan can. He's too small for that. So I just don't know what Mike Conley's role is down the stretch if Donovan Mitchell's going to be so on-ball. Well, I think it, I can sum up what you're saying in that if Mike Conley doesn't have the ball in his hands, he's simply not as effective. And yep. based on the way this Jazz roster is built, I I don't think you, barring foul trouble or matchups in any particular one game, I just don't think Mike Conley is, it, it, I don't think he can be your point guard. I, I think if the Jazz have learned one thing with this Conley trade and the experiment that they've tried to do this season. And I'll be the first guy, I'm always going to be the first guy to say, I loved the trade when they did it. I love the trade in hindsight. I love the ideas behind it. But 
I, I think if you've learned one thing, it's that for the Jazz to be the best version of themselves, Donovan Mitchell has to be your point guard for a lot of reasons. Uh, it, you know, offensively, Donovan's just better with the ball in his hands. Uh, defensively, they need a, a better wing and they need more size and better defensive presence on the wing because Mike Conley plays his plays his butt off, but he's just too small and athletically he's lost a step to the point where teams target him on the defensive end of the floor. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think nine times out of ten, I'd rather have Joe Ingles on the floor to close those games out. Um, big thing with the Jazz is I, th- I think they have to have three ball handlers and they need to have four shooters on the floor. So when you look at the closing lineup that you're talking about, Donovan Mitchell, you, you can have Mitchell, Ingles, and Bojan as your ball handlers. I think Royce is an underrated ball handler. Bojan and Royce can do enough. Yeah, they can They can do it's enough. As long as Bojan's not trying to post up and make and read the defense from the post. that's just He can't do that. That's the only thing Bojan Bogdanovic can't do on the offensive end. But yeah, you need you need Rudy at the basket and spread those shooters out, and you've got all kinds of pick and roll options. Like that's just a very difficult team to defend. And I think with Mike Conley on the floor in place of Joe Ingles, you you lose some of those benefits. And so yeah, that's where I go. Yeah, there's no Conley. Um, I love Conley. Do you care if I start a quick fire before we get going? Please do. One thing that's been really interesting development in the last NBA over the past twenty twenty five years. Um, really the last 15 years, though, is um, it used to be start your five best players. Like, that was just common sense, right? Start your five best players. They'll start their five best players. Why wouldn't you want to start the game with your five best players? Yeah. But lately, we've seen some top five players slowly start to leak towards the bench. Uh, Manny Ginobili did that in San Antonio forever. You've seen it with Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell. And you've, I mean, just go watch the progress of the statistics of the six man of the year award. <laughs> it used to be like, hi, I played 22 minutes and averaged 10 points. Now it's like, hi, I played 35 minutes and averaged 20. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if we ever get to the point where coach goes, let's bench quote unquote, let's bench our best player. Um, and this has nothing to do with minutes per game. You're still going to get 36 minutes from your best player. You're still going to have the same closing lineup. You're still going to have all that. But I wonder if a coach, and Quinn's not going to do that in this playoffs, but I wonder if a coach gets to the point where they go, in principle, let's start calling Mitchell Royce Boyan and Tony Bradley and just see if those four guys can lift Bradley, and then let's just let Gobert lift the entire bench and maybe bring Gobert. As I, said, I don't say bring him off the bench because people take that the wrong way and always benching him because he's still going to play 36 minutes a night and he's still really Gobert. But if you're really thinking about maximizing your opportunity to build a lead, if Gobert is that good and your other four players are that if Gobert is that great and your other four players are that good, maybe you shake things up a ton. And I'd say we're not to that point yet, but I think you might see that in the next five to ten years, where starting lineups are start to, are gonna get a lot more complex. And you might even see a guy like a Rudy Gobert or a Paul George or a whoever come off the bench and really just say, I'm so good, I'm gonna bring the entire bench up. And our second to six best players can go against the other team starters. You heard it here first. McCade says the Jazz need to bench Rudy Gobert to reach their potential. There you go. Now you're going <laughs> to, there's, there's a fire, I guess, if you put it that way. <laughs> no, I, I really like, I, I like the idea there. I've been a proponent for several years. The, the starting lineup essentially doesn't matter because they play no. so few minutes together on a night-to-night basis. Really, the only lineup that matters when you, you want to talk in terms of 
and the five guys on the floor. It's that last five minutes. It's your closing lineup. I I don't care if I'm starting and playing 35 minutes a night. If I'm on the floor and at the end of the game and we're down two and I'm only playing 30, that's fine because I want to be on the floor when it matters. And if you're, and I mean, the goal is we talk a lot about last five minutes and what do you do when it's close because those are exciting moments and those are what we remember and those are the games you have to win to move on in the playoffs. But if you're doing things right like the Milwaukee Bucks are and like the Jazz did last year, you're not really caring about the last five minutes of the fourth quarter. Yeah, it's true. And you're so trying to build that lead. The first 40 minutes, you don't have to stress the last five. And so there's just a lot of complex fun things I think teams could do in those first 43 minutes. Um, and I think you'll see teams start to go a little more extreme over the next decade. But we're not quite there yet. And so the Jazz should just start Rudy Gobert for now. So, I mean, I'm just supposing here and trying to, trying to think along with your train of thought. Let's take your example of... Uh, the Jazz and Quinn Snyder as the head coach, and can we can we use Rudy Gobert to elevate that bench unit even more? So you you end up starting Tony Bradley. I guess my question comes to something that we see regularly in in all professional sports, especially here in the U.S. Can a, a fragile player's ego handle that? Like it's got to be the right guy, it doesn't does. it? And that's why that's why it'll take another few years, ten years, and maybe never for something like that to happen because the the way we've been taught to think about sports is, and you know, if I tweeted this out that straight up, Hey, I think Rudy Gobert should come off the bench. It would just get crazy outlandish backlash. Oh, I'm going to say it when I release the pod is starting in a game is so important for the most part when in reality, nobody cares who's starting. We all care what the score is when the clock's at triple zero. Yep. So it's just hard to process that hard to think, for lack of a better term, outside the box like that. Um, but it could be something interesting. So in this example, you'd start Conley Mitchell, Royce Boyan, and Bradley, and they are a plus 24 in 37 possessions, which, you know, 37 possessions is nothing. That could be pretty fluky. Yeah. And then you have a bench lineup of, say, Clarkson, Ingles, Niang, Gobert, and Moutier, Conley Mitchell. If you want to let Moutier sneak in there. So I put Moutier, Clarkson, Ingles, Niang, Gobert on my spreadsheet, and they were a plus 90 in 29 possessions. Again, 29 possessions is nothing, but a plus 90 is fun. And so just, is there something there? Could it happen? Could the locker room handle it? Is something we'll have to see in the far-off future. Not this playoff here in six weeks. I say it again. McCade wants Rudy <laughs> Gobert benched. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to delete my Twitter now. All right, McCade. Thanks for coming on the pod today. Where can Absolutely. the people find you? I don't want to tell people where they can find me now. Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, no, you can find me on Twitter at McCadep8. That's M-C-C-A-D-E-P-8. Uh, I'd love to chit-chat about anything, look up numbers for you if you don't know where to find them. and Sit in misery waiting for basketball to come back like the rest of you. Oh, feels like it's right around the corner. You can find me, Brian Priest, on Twitter as well, at bpriest24. So that's at B-P-R-E-E-C-E 24. And then you can also find the pod on, uh, uh, you know, well, maybe I'll give you the name of the pod, Home Court Press, and find that on any of your major podcatchers as well as kbear.com. So thanks for coming on today, McCade, and let's go jazz and get basketball back. Thank you.